Podcast, the only book club podcast that always brings parcels of sandwiches with us. I mean, that's that's wherever we're headed, Amanda. It doesn't matter. Exactly. And we definitely don't throw half of it out to the sea. Like, no, you, you got some meat on there. You got some cheese. <laughs> I, what's the point of that? At least give it to like a gull or something. I mean, what's going to exactly. enjoy it in the ocean? <laughs> yeah, it's just going to get lost. What sandwich do you have with you today? You got a sandwich on board? Mm, yeah, uh, a, a delicious cucumber sandwich. <laughs> oh, I think I've heard. I don't know if I've ever had one of those, but I know I've heard of that or seen it. They're so good. Oh, my gosh. I'll make and one for you. What do you put on it? So it's just like a cream cheese. The, the most basic way you can do it is like butter, cream cheese, um, cucumbers, salt, pepper, and oh. some dill. So cream cheese is kind of the other, the binding agent, the extra level of interest there. Yeah, and it, and it gotcha. keeps the bread from getting soaked from the cucumber. Right, right. I guess you could dry them out a little bit, but at that point, that's yeah. a pickle sandwich. So we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> we're not here to contemplate the old pickle sandwich. <laughs> if you have no idea why we're discussing parcels and sandwiches and whatnot on trips, that is because you've stumbled into a book club part two episode on To the Lighthouse, which is a Virginia Woolf novel. If you've uh, hit play on this by accident, then you might not be in the right place because today we'll be spoiling the entirety of this novel, To the Lighthouse. Uh, we also have part one posted in the feed and a book recommendation if you haven't read this at all or have never heard of it before. You'll find that there as well, so go check that out. And yeah, if this is not the right episode for you, feel free to hit pause and come visit us later when you're ready to hear some discussion about this one. We do have social media accounts that we'd appreciate a follow on. We're on Instagram and Facebook at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. So check us out there. We post updates about what we're reading, the kind of book schedule, little promotions, little uh, drawings and stuff to just remind people what we're reading and promote the podcast, promote the episodes. So check out those. As I mentioned, it is book club time, Amanda. It's deep dive analytical time. At this point, we'll be spoiling the entire novel. We finished it, so anything in the novel is open for discussion. We'll be especially discussing the two final sections, which are called Time Passes and To the Lighthouse, fittingly enough. That is the title of the book, after all. Any content warnings for this half? I don't think so. I mean, there's some mention of, like, war and death, but there's nothing explicitly, like, yeah. described there, so... I don't yeah, think so. as with most of the novel, the, the actual descriptions are, you know, it's dense, it's, um... It's a lot of reflection and personal consideration, so it's not a lot of not a lot of description of incidents. <laughs> but yeah, there are some thoughts of of death and descriptions of people dying, but it it's brief. It is brief. Um, any other heads ups before we start this one? Heads ups is that an expression? <laughs> it is now. I, I hope so. <laughs> any other heads you'd like to turn up before we we begin <laughs> the second half? Let's dive in then. If we've got nothing else to intro, let's get into this one. Let's try and unpack it as best we can. Uh, we'll start with our 60-second summary challenge. We do this for every book club episode where we each attempt to, in 60 seconds, summarize the... Um, part of the novel we'll be discussing, part of the book we'll be discussing. In this case, obviously, that's the final two parts of this one. I'll have you go. I feel like I went first last time, so I'll have you go first. Let's see Let's see how you, let's see how you do. Um, and I've got a timer set up, so I can, I'll count you down in a second. Anything, uh, well, uh, I'll say no more. This segment is meant to spoil the book. It's meant to give a brief summary for those who haven't read it, and in case you're just wondering what happened again in that second half of To the Lighthouse, this is where we will hopefully fill you in. We'll see if we can do it in a minute. Uh, you ready? Okay, you can start now. 
Uh, time passes. I, I think it's supposed to be 10 years. We find out that Mrs. Ramsey died. Uh, we find out that Prue, who was um, the, the pretty one that Mrs. Ramsey had hoped would get married. Uh, she does get married. She has a kid, and then she dies. Um, <clears throat> and the son, Andrew, who was the one who um, was really into nature, like catching butterflies and, and sea creatures and stuff, he died in the war, <clears throat> which really depressed um, Carmichael, who was the old poet. Um, and then uh, flash forward, they're, they're back at the summer house, the same folks as before, uh, minus the dead folks, and they are the dad, uh, Mr. Ramsey, um, forces Cam and um, James to go to the lighthouse with him while Lily Ten. contemplates stuff in her painting. The end. <laughs> wow, nice. 44 or 54 seconds. What timing. Incredible. Um, anything I mean, you feel like you missed? Plot-wise, like, there's not much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. This is actually the most um, most easy to summarize and least easy to summarize book we've ever done. No question. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I struggle to find things to say for 60 seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there's people think more, and then there's some thinking, then they think mm-hmm. again. And Anyway, um, I'll start in my own. I've, I've got a timer set up already, so I'll jump in on mine in just a couple seconds here. All right, I'll begin. Time passes, yes, uh, major characters die, including Mrs. Ramsey, kind of the matriarchal figure, and then also a couple of her children die. The lighthouse, or not the lighthouse, the house on the island also kind of falls to ruin, and a couple of the people, workers there, have to try and, like, clean it and reclaim it and get it all nice and neat, because the remaining family comes to visit, and Lily and Carmichael, a couple visitors, like the same cast and crew, and so they're at the they're at the house now staying, everything seems a little weird to Lily, like a little foreign, she's missing Mrs. Ramsey and kind of thinks about her a lot and her absence and stuff. Uh, and then, yes, of course, the father, Mr. Ramsey, and two of his children take a trip to the lighthouse. They do arrive in the end of the story. They do get there. But during the trip, it's all about how much the kids hate and resent him and like are f- kind of fearful of him. And he's like a tyrant to them. Um, but he's, you know, just eating sandwiches, having a blast. In the meantime, Lily just contemplates her life and her mistakes, the things she's lost, and kind of misses again Mrs. Ramsey and the influence she had. And it's a lot of thinking. That's a minute. Wow. A lot of contemplating. Mm-hmm. The, only, the only sneak I wanted to throw in, because yours covered everything, was that um, in the Time Passes segment, there's some good details there about the lives of the house workers that they hire, and I enjoyed that. <laughs> I appreciated those little, they're, they're little side excerpts in a sense, but I did appreciate that they were there. So Yeah. Let's dive in then. Let's do some quotes for clarification. This is a segment we always do in a book club <coughs> episode, no matter which one it is we're covering, first half or second. It's just when we each pick some quotes from the work that are meaningful, that we want to discuss and include things about it that we find fascinating or interesting or worth chatting about. I guess I'll go first because we've kind of already spoiled this one. How did you feel about Mrs. Ramsey dying? Uh my notes actually were like uh, the way that it was introduced. I was like, "Oh, damn! Okay, so super fast and, and not yeah. a whole lot of detail. All right, fascinating. <laughs> it's in bra- It's literally in brackets. I think it's the first yeah. thing in the whole book in brackets, and yep. it's coming off of a paragraph about the knights in the island. That's the other thing. Is it's a real a classic juxtaposition here, a real segue without much warning. And so the paragraph before, I won't read the whole thing, but it has lines like, "The knights are now full of wind and destruction. The trees plunge and." bend the sea tosses itself and breaks itself and and things like that um what else 
the hand dwindles in his hand, the voice bellows in his ear. I don't even, that's just talking about some anonymous person, like just a, per, a sleeper. And anyway, so it's just a lot of, you know, it's, it's very un, um, I was going to say unrestful. Restless, I believe, is the word for that. It's very restless. It's very, <laughs> you know, violent. It's intense, destructive. And then, yeah, a very short paragraph in brackets. Mr. Ramsey, stumbling along a passage one dark morning, stretched his arms out. But Mrs. Ramsey, having died rather suddenly the night before, his arms, though stretched out, remained empty. Meaningful enough, too, that it's her death. We don't even really know how precisely. But all we know is that he's alone now. He, he doesn't have yeah. the anchor that he used to rely on to, you know, carry social conversation and niceties <laughs> she's mm-hmm. just gone yeah uh <clears throat> and the other two deaths are also i believe in brackets but and we don't even know really which one happened first either like the right the chronology right. of it is is a bit spotty um so we're not 100 percent sure and and i just i was just like flat i was like man i thought she was going to be because remember in, in the the previous episode you and i were like oh well it's going to be interesting to see how she you know what else mrs ramsey yeah, has to changes. say and think yeah right <laughs> and it's like nope <laughs> yeah it's um i don't know the book has such a wide and broad and impactful literary reputation that it's hard to know without doing some like scott real scholarship and like reading up on the history it's hard to know why this book is so famous. I mean, we can take some guesses, but I have to imagine this section is one of the reasons because in terms yeah. of like the flow of a novel, the structure, the expectations, it's uh, incredibly bold. I think, you know, the other thing is to a modern reader, I, I don't think it would shock us as much to see this kind of a choice, but in the terms of when it was published and the, the literary expectations, it would definitely have been a much more bold and shocking decision. I yeah. mean, we, we're coming off of... Visit from the Goon Squad, is that what that was? Yeah, I was just going to call it Goon Squad, but by Jennifer Egan. And that, I think, is wildly experimental and even kind of bursts the novel form open in a sense it's like is it even a novel but this i found still like mesmerizing i it this is i think the best part of the book for me it's the part i enjoyed the most it it mm-hmm. was readable i thought it thematically had tons of like i tried to read the paragraphs that transition it had tons of intriguing kind of just like melting falling apart it was kind of gothic and destroyed and like the house is in ruins in a sense and i enjoyed all of that and then of course having that up against just ra- what seems like random death i mean obviously she, she's not dealing with any sentiment or isn't trying to like explore the the meaning of these relationships going away she just <laughs> bluntly states it i don't know i thought it was like brilliant I, I definitely thought it was probably the strongest part of the book though it's the most off-putting too i think it it was my favorite part of um the the three it was my favorite piece um and i thought that the reason that i liked it so much as well is the the way that she's able to create this mood with her language like you can really see uh virginia wolf's style in this particular section and just like really celebrate in that and and i really yeah. appreciated it and the way that i, I was just thinking too like the way that these sections are is almost like three different short stories. Yeah. That you, if you were to pluck it out and just leave it on its own, y- you could definitely have a short story out of that. Like it, it could stand alone as a story. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I just, I really appreciated that. Yeah. It's, it's quite a turn and I, yeah, I don't know. I kind of loved it. I, I think we, in the first part, I guess we shouldn't call them halves first part, we were kind of begging for 
I I don't know for the story to focus in on something it, it just there's just so many characters in the first part there's some clear themes you know and ideas motifs we picked up on and thought about but I I just think the second part is so focused and mm-hmm. I mean it's also more brief too but even the third yeah. part which I'm sure we'll pull some quotes from I also found much more focused just because the cast is so much more narrow it's like basically it's Lily yeah. and then you kind of learn about the father and his kids and that's that's it it's basically two stories where it's like either yeah. we're thinking about what Lily's doing and her life her you know the things she's done and hasn't done or we're on the boat and that's its own kind of insightful little family drama and so i just found this last two parts infinitely more readable not (laughs) i don't know that's weird to say because they're still incredibly hard to read but they're to me they were much more comprehensible Mm -hmm. yep how about for your quote what do you want to get into um i'll go with um like a, a comparison um so on page 126, this is from the, the time passes, I think. Anyway, um, nothing stirred in the drawing room or in the dining room or on the staircase, only through the rusty hinges and swollen, sea-moistened woodwork, certain airs detached from the body of the wind. The house was ramshackle after all, crept around corners and ventured indoors. Almost, one might imagine them as they entered the drawing room, questioning and wondering, toying with the flap of hanging wallpaper, asking, would it hang much longer? Would it? When would it fall? Then smoothly brushing the walls, they passed on musingly, as if asking the red and yellow roses on the wallpaper whether they would fade, and questioning gently, for there was time at their disposal, the torn letters in the waste paper basket, the flowers, the books, all of which were now open to them and asking, were they allies? Were they enemies? How long would they endure? <coughs> Sorry. Um, so that creates a mood and I I absolutely loved it. What also for me as uh, what I'm picturing too is this, that was a description of their house, um, Mm -hmm. that at the beginning it says it's swollen, sea moistened woodworks, um, airs. So that also like if, if I were to continue reading, there's more of this like almost drowning imagery, this imagery of like a flood of stuff. And for me... That that's great for set like it's beautiful imagery. It's like a great description, but also for me it brings forward um, thoughts about like uh, the story of the great flood in in mm-hmm. the Bible, like the Noah's yeah, Ark sure. and stuff, and <clears throat> especially when we think about uh, Mister Ramsey in the end, like pulling out his boat and you know sailing across these waters to like a a, a kind of almost like chosen land, you could say. Um, Though notably not doing any actual sailing. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Pro- Just probably. telling the other folks to do it. Yeah, yeah. He's got workers <laughs> for that. And then I think it's his son, right, who steers. But, like, yeah. Yep. It's, yeah. Yep. Um, so <clears throat> I, I found that really interesting. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, there's there's been some biblical references. But what stood out to me and, and is related to the question that I asked you for, for this week's um, essay question is just that there's so much of the mythology... Of, of Greek mythology specifically. Um, so that comparison of like biblical flooding and stuff, which I'm not sure, is there flooding in, in like the Greek myths or anything? Oh, I don't, I don't uh, that's know. a fair question. Probably, I, I don't right? know, but I would assume so. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. We should, we should uh, uh, ask, uh, what was her name? Natalie, the one who wrote Pandora's Jar. Oh, Natalie Haynes. Yeah, we're posting. Yeah. Actually, when we're recording this, we're posting her stuff this week. Well, and next week oh, too. Fun. But yeah, no. Perfect. Yes, we we definitely would get a a strong 
clear response i'm sure it would be yeah incredibly insightful as for us i don't know my my knowledge of greek myth comes and goes you know it's and it's funny too because i taught that i mean to middle school students so it's a pretty basic shallow version but not in any myth i can recall Uh, i'm sure there is one there there must be right there always is right yeah or a city maybe atlantis got overwhelmed by a flood i don't even remember what happened there maybe it broke off yeah who knows yeah and yeah so compare that to um page 208 the description of carmichael as as poseidon essentially surging up puffing slightly old mr carmichael stood beside her looking like an old pagan god shaggy with weeds in his hair and the trident it was only a french novel in his hand he stood by her on the edge of the lawn swaying a little in his bulk and said shading his eyes they will have landed um Anyway, and it goes on where he's like, it seems like a blessing from him. But mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I just thought that was interesting that there was, there there are pockets of some like biblical allusions, but for the most part, it's overwhelmingly, I think, um, that I picked up on anyway is, is the Greek mythology. I'm also way more familiar <laughs> with Greek mythology than biblical mm-hmm. um, yeah. references, so that just might be me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I... Uh, I just thought that was interesting that there's like that uh, almost like a set up like a contrast um, where is the house supposed to be like Eden in some way and then it falls into disrepair and is like flooded out and and then like what takes over is like the paganism like because she says specifically pagan God like I don't know. Yeah. Well, I never, I didn't think about it in that sense of like an abandonment of one for the other or a placement or something. That is interesting though. I suppose then it would, Carmichael makes for a curious study. He'll come up again in the essay, of course, but like, because he's basically absent, you know, he sleeps through that entire section of the book. (laughs) Well, until, until the end when he gets, yeah, he gives his little observation. Um, It's sort of like he had no, he had no thoughts on the matter. And then of course he gets to dip in as, as a man and just give his expert opinion about, well, they've made it by now. And you know, okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't know his replacement. Yeah. I, 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 there's no way I can podcast an answer to that. I don't think I have any coherent thoughts that I can just (laughs) like put together because yeah, I hadn't thought about it comparing them in that way. I, yeah, I'd ha- and I'd have to look back at the first part, too. That's the other trick. Because I, I don't remember, you're right, I don't remember too many biblical allusions in this final section. Uh, I'm yeah. sure we could sneak some in if we needed to. Did anyone get swallowed by a fish? Was it, <laughs> did I miss that? <laughs> There's the fish that they cut up and leave in the bow, but that's just kind of... I guess the other thing, too, this is all, you know, preview ahead, look ahead, spoiler talk, is like, I was just caught up in... I don't, and maybe it was because of the motif I chose in the first part, but I was just caught up in violent language. That's really what was tipping my interest. Was just like anything that was had that tinge to it. I there's a lot of that I think with the men in the, in these stories, and that picked up yeah. in the second part too, so or in the final part. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. I have no. Do you have any thoughts on that before we jump to another quote? Because yeah, I don't. I wish I could offer some kind of theory on it, some idea, but I, I don't think I have one. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, the the relationship between Mrs. Ramsey and James in the beginning, it's almost like, you know, the the Madonna paintings that you see where it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got almost a halo. She's so angelic and and James is like her her sweet little son. Right. She's very much the mother. I don't know. It's, It's a lot. (laughs) <laughs> to to the it was just something that I had thought up like last night as I was like finishing up reading I was just like oh man it's that's that's something that could you could totally go back and reread everything and it would just 
I think, change your perspective of a lot of stuff. Yeah, but, and his his kind of disillusion, <clears throat> or at least like mental, I don't know, questioning mental disillusion, mental discontent in the final part mm-hmm. too is is noteworthy then because yeah he's he's presented as kind of just a sweet angelic figure in the first part so obviously yeah. time passed and was not kind to his development you know and so yeah uh, we might even talk about that actually in a second i only had one more quote from the time passes that i wanted to discuss but i will say it's it's an achievement as you noted in mood and it's also i just thought an achievement in in nature writing i thought it was mm. and maybe that was why i loved it so much is because it it's just like she flipped a switch and really wanted to show degradation of the land and of the house and stuff but it, it's it, fittingly it's confusing i suppose <laughs> or it's there's a lot yeah. of ideas jumbled up in one so this is a brief paragraph mm-hmm. but i th- i thought it represented it well it said, In spring, the garden urns, casually filled with wind-blown plants, were gay as ever. Violets came in daffodils, but the stillness and brightness of the day were as strange as the chaos and tumult of the night, with the trees standing there and the flowers standing there, looking before them, looking up, yet beholding nothing, eyeless and so terrible. It's kind of horrifying. It's like these passive watchers, you know? It's like they have no, obviously, investment in this land. They're just hanging on <laughs> to their little pots and growing. But, you know, it's it's obviously typically beautiful poetic sites of flowers put put against this kind of horrible purpose and that they're just kind of indifferent survivor survivors i guess you could paint them mm-hmm. as um you know there's chaos and tumult and they're just they're just beholding nothing and and just sort of enduring and i guess it, it does in some ways reflect uh, the passage of time how it treats the family the indifference of death itself and just sort of how time will continue and you know these people their lives change profoundly but who really notices or who can really care uh, because we don't travel with them <laughs> because we're stuck in the house <laughs> instead of like you mm-hmm. know following them in their lives for the 10 years so i thought yeah i just found so many of those paragraphs in that section to be really wonderful and to be I guess it's impressive because it's so compact and we know that Wolf will allow herself whatever words she wants to to do what she wants like she's who knows what her editing was like for the things she wrote but in this novel I I can't even imagine what editing it would look like or feel like you know (laughs) trying to like piece it together is impossible so yeah I just think there were so many cohesive and concise I guess little moments in the time passes that that was just one I wanted to shout out because I thought it was really great yeah that's <clears throat> the the imagery that she can create in in this part it's just uh the whole time i was reading i was like yeah i this is so great like yeah and and, and it's in a in a digestible chunk too because it's so short mm-hmm. but it's so filled with like emotion it's it's great like i said i i feel like a lot of these could be made into like short stories in a lot of ways yeah <clears throat> yeah the time passes is stylistically bold structurally pretty innovative or clever even uh, well innovative uh, who knows L- long history of literature <laughs> hard to call anything mm-hmm. innovative but uh, it's certainly bold and i think in a novel is yeah stands apart for sure any other quotes you want to unpack yeah i've got one more um this one is from page 159 it's about lily and how she's kind of like struggling to to figure out what to paint because she's like bothered by Mr. Ramsey and also the loss of Mrs. Ramsey. Can't paint, can't write, she murmured monotonously, anxiously considering what her plan of attack should be. For the mass loomed before her, it protruded, she felt it pressing on her eyeballs. Then, as if some juice necessary for the lubrication of her faculties were spontaneously squirted. 
She began precariously dipping among the blues and umbers, moving her brush hither and thither, but it was now heavier and went slower, as if it had fallen in with some rhythm which was dictated to her. She kept looking at the hedge at the canvas by what she saw, so that while her hand quivered with life, this rhythm was strong enough to bear her along with it on its current. Certainly she was losing consciousness of outer things, blah, 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 blah. So <clears throat> what I liked about this is that, I mean, I, I think that it's just like really beautifully written in general, but it's like she's turning into a robot because it, it, the juice necessary for the lubrication of her faculties, like that's very much like robotic, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. the machines. She gets and, a couple of moments that. like that, too, where it's sort of, mm -hmm. I don't know, what do you think the role of art is in her life? Here's a big question. Could be a little essay question, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that was something I had questioned as well, especially yeah. the last sentence. Right, right. How do, how do you read her commitment to the painting? It also, doesn't the story end with the painting? It does, yeah. yeah. It's, um, she, she ends the story with Lily saying, okay, I'm done. It's, it's complete. I've had my, what she says is, I've had my vision. I've completed my vision or whatever. Yeah, right. Any um, any readings into that? I mean, I don't know. I always hesitate whenever, you know, one thing I don't really love in fiction is when the fiction is about the type of fiction it is. So it's like, I don't love books about authors. I don't love movies about filmmakers. But mm -hmm. at least this is a slight crossover. You know, it's one artist trying to maybe understand art more broadly or a different form of art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... From what I interpreted, especially from the last line of the story, <clears throat> um, I'll just pull it up real quick. I can. It says, "Yes, she yeah. thought laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision." Um, so that's the final line as she finishes up the the final brush stroke there, which is just a line apparently. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, when with that last sentence, with the idea of the vision, I was like, okay. So is she meant to be some kind of almost like oracle figure, a seer of some sort that um, that is meant to either look into <clears throat> what humanity is like, what this like family is like, because the painting is of Mrs. Ramsey and James, or mm -hmm. is it meant to like kind of be predictive in that there's a lot of it's supposed to be like this beautiful painting of a mother and and a child but there's a lot of uh scary elements to it right there's like a a shadowy triangular figure and anything with angles is automatically perceived as threatening whereas rounder things are meant to be um uh, indicative of like soft of of welcoming of 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 nature and stuff like that yeah yeah um and also, like the just that final line that she throws in down the middle that 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 shows a separation between. If I understood the painting itself, it's like there it was the it was Mrs. Ramsey and James sitting on by the window at the beginning, <clears throat> mm -hmm. and but there's a lot of empty space there, and it's like there's all these shadows on the other side. Presumably from, like, perhaps Mr. Ramsey, like, you know, pacing back and forth and who knows what, like, Brooding. all those kids. Yeah. And the other philosophers wandering around <laughs> at the mm -hmm. time. So perhaps that final line is to show that separation between 
Mrs. Ramsey and the cares of the world that she had, um, everything that she cared about there. So perhaps that, or I don't know. I'm still mulling it over in my mind. Well, I think in part one, it's meaningful. We could compare the paintings. I suppose we probably, in in a more, you know, if this were a, some undergrad class or if we had an actual essay to write maybe that would be a worthwhile thing so like let's go back to that first painting and actually start to compare the descriptions of both because i they're similar nature compositions and in both cases she's pretty torn about what should be done the simple reading here's a really basic read in the first half she's eager to get back and in the second one she's exhausted by finishing and in that that's a time passes moment right there youth versus age pretty simple again reading but it's it seems to fit okay where it's like she in her youth she was a bit more fiery and had you know some like critical insights and things she needed to say and then now that she's older i think she's 44 right in the yeah that's yeah, what it says yeah 44 and so now she's just kind of she's still going through the motions but is tired of it all and she's worried about it being forgotten there are many reflections at least two to three where she's worried about the painting just being thrown under a couch or you know stored up in an attic and abandoned like she doesn't really know why she's doing this activity but she's just doing it at least it has some kind of permanence and so yeah, there's this very different, this change in her, this view of, like, art and how it has different purposes or different meanings, I guess. So, interesting character. We were right about her. that she Because I think coming out of the first part, we thought maybe Mrs. Ramsey will carry it. Obviously, there's this shock. <laughs> no. And then, and then Lily, though, was another one where we were like, yeah, I think getting more from her would be interesting. And it really, yeah, yeah it really became about her. Um, mm-hmm. My final quote, and then we'll move to the essays, which I think I'm, mine's going to be brief today, but so maybe the essays won't go too long. Anyway, I couldn't leave this part of the book without commenting on this again, bringing it up. And I'll, I'll ask you the big question before reading the quote. Do you find this book funny? Mm. Um, <clears throat> no. I find it very serious. Uh, yeah. I, I think, yeah. No, I would it's, say no. It's stylistically dead serious. It could not be more serious. Like, it could not yeah. be... You, you don't write a book where in every almost every paragraph a character contemplates the death or the passage of time and then not have it be considered serious. But I found another scene in this book hilarious again, just like I found parts of the dinner scene to be just wildly, insanely funny because of their extremely toned or um, tuned up tones. Uh, the boat scene with the kids I found just hilarious. The whole time they think about how much they hate their father. He's a tyrant. They wish him literally dead. They'll never give in to him. They'll never be influenced. And then, of course, the whole time he couldn't give less of a shit. He just eats a sandwich and makes light comments about the trip. And then when they get to the island to get to the lighthouse, he's like, all right, let's go check it out. And that <laughs> meaningfully, I think, at least in my mind, the fact that we really do we ever get his point of view in this final part, Mr. Ramsey, like maybe a, it's got to be brief if we do, because it's mostly it- his kids. Yeah, we do. Um, well, I don't think that we get um, his perspective with his kids, but that that one we get a brief glimpse when he's interacting with Lily, and he's like, he oh, asks yeah. himself, like, why isn't she just giving in to me? Why isn't she giving me the sympathy? Like, yeah. what's wrong with her? <laughs> yeah, he wants the he wants the female attention back, which in a lesser yeah. book would have been kind of more of a sexual thing. And I think it's right. commented upon briefly that they like don't have a attraction sexual dynamic. Maybe that's why. But yeah, Lily also is just not. She doesn't have those. She's not trained like Mrs. Ramsey was mentally to 
kind of give him sympathy and and take in all of his burdens and stuff and to take a, take that burden upon herself but on the boat itself it's just it's just lines like this this is his i think this is cam or james i can't remember which one is thinking this oh, i think it's james but it said they must walk behind him carrying brown paper parcels but they vowed in silence as they walked to stand by each other and carry out the great compact to resist tyranny to the death so there they would sit one at the end of the boat one at the other in silence they would say nothing only look at him now and then he's there he sat with his legs twisted frowning and fidgeting and pishing and pawing and muttering things to himself and waiting impatiently for a breeze and they hoped it would be calm they hoped he would be thwarted they hoped the whole expedition would fail and they would have to put back with their parcels to the beach and you know he's he just couldn't be more indifferent he reads his book the whole time he eats a sandwich he enjoys and makes them eat their sandwiches and then he <laughs> i don't know i i mean of course, there's a million ways to read it, and it's there in serious ways about relationships. About there's also the the son versus daughter dynamic. How Cam eventually kind of bends to him and and kind of wants to make him feel better, and has that sympathetic side that Mrs. Ramsey had. There and James, of course, is stubborn and um, uses that violent language, resist tyranny to the death. I think that's his kind of slogan that he repeats as his little motif. But yeah. I just found that it's a it's more situational comedy. Like I obviously sentence by sentence it's not funny or at least i you know it'd be harder to pick some lines that are like humorous but i don't know it it just it's like in the first part when you have such pitched up moments that don't have communication to them at all like none of the characters ever communicate i just i don't i do find it funny i i've laughed i wrote haha a couple times at lines like that where it's like these people are just they're so unaware of each other that it's kind of brutal that they're like brutalizing each other and they don't even know it and again no one ever speaks or says anything or interacts right yeah the i guess the the humor is in the the irony there but yeah there's so little actually happening but their minds are going like a million times a minute and it's like every he's like uh oh hey good job getting us to the lighthouse and immediately james is like completely diffused and he's like all right he's not that bad of a guy yeah (laughs) oh my god he complimented me there was a line before that too pretty close to it as i recall about how he said he never compliments me like he'll never he never he will never say that i did a good job and then of course he offhandedly because his father probably who knows he's probably not even thinking about the kids that much and he's just like yeah all right nice job we're here let's go check it out let's go deliver our things to the people to the lighthouse keeper yeah there's just a certain Maybe, and this is probably the type of humor or laughter that reflects more on the person laughing than on the the writer. In this case, I was going to say comedian, but Wolf is not a comedian. She's (laughs) doing other things here. But maybe it's just the things that I find humorous. And I find that gap, yeah, I find that gap humorous, I guess, between what Mm -hmm. is happening internally versus externally. And when you've raised your tone and when you've raised the writing to a certain pitch and then it doesn't like that's the internal pitch but the external is such a difference i don't know i guess i just find that those scenarios funny because i found the dinner scene pretty humorous at times and i found a lot of those little breaks like that to be also hilarious when it's just like there's another line where he finishes the book in the boat and it's just you can just imagine a person just being you know riding the waves enjoying themselves just kind of neutral just being like yeah okay i'm just reading my book and the kids in the meantime are like thinking about his death they're like plotting his death yeah it's just like i don't (laughs) there's just a humor to that yeah maybe it's again it's more me than the book maybe that's that's the takeaway I mean, it's it's the way that you're imagining the scene, and I love it. It's yeah. because I I was just so into the the weeds of 
of like their thoughts and stuff not not continuing to keep in my mind the comparison of the actual like actions <laughs> of these people but yeah, yeah and you only get little snippets that too that and and i think that's why that when the dialogue does kick in or when there's a little prog- progress in terms of behavior characters doing stuff then i do think that's why i found it so funny it's yeah. just because every time that comes up which is rarely i had to cling to some kind of reading anyway um any other quotes to talk on? I just, yeah, I felt obligated to bring that up. And at least we did cover the ending with the painting, though, very roughly. That's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, a, stories like this are so much to analyze. Who knows what to cover and what not to, but any other exactly, thoughts? Exactly, yeah. No, no, it's good. Let's do some essays, then. Imaginary ones, of course, because we'll, this will give us some time to analyze, too, before we wrap up. Um, imaginary essay is a simple segment we always do in the second part book club and it's just what it sounds like we each have given the other person an imaginary essay prompt to outline we have not actually responded in in written essays that would take far too much time this is just for some more discussion and we're going to attempt to answer these questions i kind of want to go first i know i just was talking a lot but i kind of want to go first because mine will be brief i think Let's do it. I kind of want to get mine out of the way, so to speak, and have you tag in. But yeah, do you want to throw yours out there? Yeah. Uh, So my question is, there seems to be a lot of references to Greek mythology. There's Harpies, Poseidon, Argus, and Sisyphus, among others, I'm sure, that I didn't pick up on. How do these references affect your understanding of the story? Yes. So... Here's the answer, uh, zero, because when you sent this to me, I thought, I don't remember one of these. <laughs> but then I, so what I did, so here was my honest approach. Uh, now, obviously, if this were a class or something, you, you do the fake it till you make it. I, of course, would have profound things to say. I would do, I would go into the stacks. I would be in the library just crushing tape. Uh, that's, I guess, a, a sports expression. But <laughs> I'd be rereading, you know, I'd be doing the deep research. I'd be going, pulling the articles, the famous scholarly interpretations and really grinding this down but the honest answer was like none i didn't even there were so many things i was caught up on in the story uh, among them like tone like character juxtapositions like we were kind of talking about and to me the thing that kept carrying me away carrying me away was like images of violence descriptions of violence like i that is the thing that really had me caught up as a motif that i was thinking about a ton but i there were two that i remembered just without having to do any like deep research so i do have a kind of an honest answer and there are two moments so that those are the ones i want to talk about first and then Mm -hmm. you can obviously tag in and we'll any of them that you want to discuss we should let's go back to carmichael poseidon because that was one of them i did remember where i thought about it for a couple seconds it was like well there was a person holding a trident was what my memory told me (laughs) so i went back to that page Um, did you have any readings on that because i know we started to lightly unpack it to me if I had to give a loose, quick interpretation, it's just that it, it's this another pathetic man figure who he's given all the powers. You know, he's a pagan god. He's got control of the sea. Th- this entity that's fighting the people on the boat. Th- that's another fun contrast is because we go back and forth from the land to the boat. Like the boat people, there's there's a, it's a bit tempestuous, but on the land, it looks so serene. You know, it looks so peaceful. And I thought that was a nice mm-hmm. contrast she played with. But I just thought it was, again, I thought this was hilarious that he's sleeping the whole time. Lily's kind of annoyed that he's there. And there's some thoughts about that. But he doesn't do anything. And then, of course, when they when they get there, he just gets to wake up and go, oh, they're going to make it. He lends his manly interpretation, you know, his like expertise, <laughs> false expertise. And then he and then he didn't, you know, it's just like and Lily kind of condescendingly doesn't she like, kind of agree with him. But there's some condescension to it. Like, God, of course, you yeah. just get to say whatever's, you know, it's like, OK, thanks. I, I guess this is mansplaining in the 19 teens or whatever. <laughs> um 
But so I found that funny. I, th- I thought it was kind of poking at his. I, it was kind of a pathetic little scene. I mean, he's he's bedraggled. He's got stuff in his beard. He's not. It's not like an intimidating godlike Poseidon. It's not a, a a fury of the seas. You know, furious god raging and powerful. Instead, it's just a sleeping pathetic man who does get to weigh in though, because of course, because he's a man. So I think in yeah. the telling of the story, it makes sense that he just he gets to do one final quick check in, even though it's unearned and he wasn't even paying attention and he was passed out and just didn't care. But of course, he has the final word he like gets his say yeah it definitely uh, goes at the heart of one of the points that i think virginia wolf is making um which is that like men are so driven by their egos and they have this idea that they're almost like these little gods um but the control actually is out of their hands and they actually rely very much on praise which Mm -hmm. if you think about it too uh the the greek gods uh like they wanted the praise they they wanted uh prayers from those that they found lesser than them yeah. right so yeah, and they just wanted that the makes attention sense. exactly so so it makes sense that these guys especially a poet come on you know they're they're and and these philosophers they want the praise from those that they look down on right they're not as artistic as i am they're not as thoughtful as i am but they still need that ego stroke um, which I found really interesting too. And, and, and the idea of control for me also ties in with, <clears throat> you had mentioned like how calm the sea looks at one point, um, when they're riding in the boat to the lighthouse, the, the wind just stops. Um, which also brought to mind, um, I don't know which one of the Greek stories it was, but there's like no wind. Yeah, um, and it they're might just be like kind of sitting there. It might be part of the Odyssey where they like can't, yeah, yeah where they can't move along or get, yeah, I, yeah. This is where my ignorance comes into. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it might be in the Odyssey though, where they're trying to get to an island and then they get swept up or pushed away or something. Yeah, I forget. Yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, so the there the idea of like actually they they have no control over what they think they have control over or what they expect to have control over. It just like highlights how um, how unimportant they really are in the grand scheme of things. Um, I, I liked that contrast as well. Yeah, it's a couple lines from that segment too. Uh, man, uh, again, I'm going to just keep appealing to you for this. I found this line hilarious. At the end of this novel, one of the final sentences on these pages is, um, she felt that she had been right. They had not needed to speak. I mean, how this is a, this is a novel where basically no one speaks, and then when they yeah. do, it's so meaningless. They shouldn't have even yeah. said any. It's like it conveys nothing. You can't even you can't even truly comprehend a person by what they say and what you hear. And so it's just like I again, I found that hilarious. What a great line and commentary on your own book. It's a it's an mm-hmm. exhausting book to read that has almost no dialogue, and then one of the final reflections of a character is why we don't even need to talk at all. <laughs> like. <laughs> I don't know. I found that hilarious. But then, yeah, his his view or her view of him is he stood there as if he were spreading his hands over all the weakness and suffering of mankind. She thought he was surveying tolerantly and compassionately their final destiny, and he has crowned the occasion, she thought. So it's like he is obviously like a revered figure in a sense. I don't think she's – I don't think she has as critical a view of him as I do, but I do think it would be like the book's position that it's kind of a pathetic – 
it's kind of a pathetic inclusion in a sense because again he has no it's fitting it befits his like role it befits the role of men but in in reality it's just it's a whole lot of nothing he just was passed out and then said something when he woke up that's it (laughs) so the other one though let's do one more and again, this is my sincere reactions. The, I, there's probably a ton of references I just completely missed, but the harpy definitely got me. I, I 100% remember it. I even had highlights and writings, and it was something I was close reading to as it happened. So I did pick up on that. That was another Greek myth reference that I did get. Uh, quick quote. I mean, there's a bunch to say. It's a long comparison, too. That's probably why it stuck with me, is because it's like two pages long or a page and a half long. Anyway, um, and they come back to it. This is James thinking of it. It's an old symbol. Um, It says, thinking of him, this is the father, as that fierce, sudden, black-winged harpy with its talons and its beak all cold and hard that struck and struck at you. He could feel the beak on his bare legs where it had struck when he was a child and then made off. And there he was again, an old man, very sad, reading his book, that he would kill, that he would strike to the heart, whatever he did, whether he was in business, in banker, a barrister, a man at the head of some enterprise, that he would fight, that he would track down and stomp out tyranny, despotism, he called it. Um, and that's what James wants to do. So it's like his father's presence as this harpy, his, I don't, well, I guess in the most literal sense, are you reading the harpy as kind of his dismissiveness, his attitude, his sort of masculine dominance or something? What, how, what's the simple, quick comparison? Because it's almost like his disapproval is the harpy or his attitude. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that it's his, his attitude, the, the need to be the best in some yeah. ways and to put others down. Yeah, so there's, and that's the thing that James loathes, and he, you know, he swears he'll fight it. He promises to fight it. This is like an, an enemy, an antithesis force, ant- antithetical force that he's going to come up against and antagonist, antagonist that he wants to fight. And so, yeah, and there's also commands like, do this, fetch me that, the black wings spread, the beak, the hard beak tore. And so it's... Yeah, it's just a despotic, gross. I mean, it's fitting if the harpies are kind of violent, they're grotesque, don't they? They protect the underworld and kind of guard it mm-hmm. or something, kind of rule over it. And so, you know, it's a simple, violent comparison. Another example of, I think that's also why the reading lined up for me here is because it's very violent. These descriptions are intensely violent. And again, yeah. my, my brain was just attuned for that. I was hyper ready to notice and try and interpret any, any violence in the story, I think. Um, I'd trained myself from the first part to do that. So, yeah, the harpy I thought was also quite meaningful. But again, I don't think I have... It's like the Carmichael. I I don't know. I have a reading for sure. I don't think I have a deep through-line essay-type reading where I can tie all Mm -hmm. this together, though. It's just like I thought it was another excellent example of how the kids are tormented by his presence. Even though he is not violent, he has created this atmosphere. He's the kind of domineering person, judgmental and insufferable in a way that, like, you know, destroys and violently disrupts the atmosphere around him and everything so I yeah I thought it was really effective at that but in terms of the myth like tying it together this is where I'll tag you in because I don't know if I have a I don't know if I have a reading was there one of them that I missed critically is there like a really important reference that we should go through Uh, I mean not necessarily I I thought that there was um um I forgot who it was uh it might have been Mr. Ramsey where he like thinks of himself as like being tortured and like the Mm. the but he compares himself directly to Sisyphus where he's pushing the rock up constantly. He feels gotcha. like he's just constantly going uphill with something heavy. Um, and then there was also like some reference that um, about Argus, who's the, the demigod with all the eyes watching, constantly right. watching. Um, so, but like for me, the, the way that I read <clears throat> all of these references is 
it's almost like another one of those comparisons, uh, like like the what's said versus what's what's not said. It's this idea of like this grandiose undertaking of going across to the lighthouse of yeah. this this adventure um, that turns out like you know it's it's actually not and it's pretty pretty mundane and <laughs> like um, <clears throat> just to highlight again I think the um, uh, men's propensity for for grandiosity and when viewing themselves, yes, um, and in in this case, not not humans, but in in for Virginia Woolf at least specifically, men. <laughs> well, and I think James too isn't so far from his father. Then, just in so far as they both couch their suffering their struggles in this language you know they're both yes. like they both need to interpret their lives in this one grandiose mythical way in order to understand it better and like comprehend mm-hmm. it when in when in reality i guess like let me end with, end with this question I, how do i always stumble my way into like defending the toxic man i think i have issues man i gotta <laughs> gotta get some therapy going like stat. i feel like in every book that we read that has clear like feminist undertones which i agree with i'm always like but wait a second <laughs> um yeah do you find their father to be a particularly like odious and evil man? Like, did how did you? I mean, again, because so little happens in the story, it's as if we just have to trust Wolf on this one. And of course, like because we know history and we have tons of world historical examples, like I don't need exact a lot of selling on this idea. I don't need to be persuaded that you know that there's a history of misogynistic power structures. But like, did you find him especially? Because again, when he's eating his sandwiches and just reading on the boat, I was like, this is come on, this is a likable man, right? Like, <laughs> what's wrong with him? What's he doing? You know, did you just like yeah. him or something? I mean. At the beginning, I did because we saw things through Mrs. Ramsey's perspective. Yeah, where yeah. she's like, "Oh, he's coming over here again." He like, he just won't let me have any peace. Like he's just constantly yeah. in my face. I gotta always like stroke his ego. Like why can't he just deal with it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So it, like at the beginning, I was like, "Ugh, yeah." That, it's telling, I think, that like in terms of villains to embody symbolically misogyny I just think if you included a character of his ilk in a let's say a 2023 narrative any type like TV or movies we would need him to do some more odious behavior I think we would need one or two more pitched you know negative things that like clearly tip off his attitude and and show his misogyny because i just think the book expects us to and now granted like you said there's such point of view shifts that's where the trust has to come in as us as readers where it's like we'll trust us to kind of get the point of view shifts and how mrs ramsey perceives everything so it's yeah i think the book does a fine enough job of it but (laughs) there's a version of this where i read it in a kind of in a you know exaggerated way where it's like is he so bad like let's give this guy a break you know <laughs> he's just trying to write yeah. his crappy philosophy and like eat a sandwich <laughs> um anyway yeah i just thought i'd throw that reading in so no cohesive uh, essay answer for you but those examples i thought were interesting the harpy yeah. the poseidon stuff so hopefully that gave you some kind of answer um yeah. lo- loose answer uh my essay question for you which i gave you late so this one came in came in hot it was just about lack of dialogue so you can interpret that however you want or provide any readings around it you want but it's the question is just like how do we deal with a story where basically no one speaks and where one of the final lines of the story is we didn't need to say anything to each other we shouldn't even have spoke <laughs> um again i find that hilarious but uh take it away how do you read the the internal versus external uh, so, uh, th- there were a couple of things that, 
um, I pulled out from it. So um, based on the... So when we look at the first part... Uh, we actually get quite a few insights. We The biggest ones are from Mrs. Ramsey and Lily. But we get um, quite a bit, actually, from Mr. Banks, Mr. Ramsey, Mr. Tansley, and even from James and Cam a little bit. So we get more insights um, in the very first part in the window section. Um, and then in the end, we just get James, Cam, and um, Lily's perspectives for the most part. But... Because the perspectives are so heavily, I think, female influenced, mm-hmm. um, we see that there's like a lot of gendering and stuff like that, and and a lot of um, resentment of gender roles, uh, specifically in communication. So how women communicate versus how men communicate, uh, especially in polite society, and then also even in those silences, we see a lot of differences in, in expectations for what should be said, what should be done. Um, but even in silence, um, it seems like Virginia Woolf is saying that there's a need to dominate women, even in silence, like not even when they're just speaking, but just like when they're sitting there being left alone, they still have to be put in their place they need, in some they ways need a by glance. a man. They need a glance, right. you know? It's, as, we've, <laughs> as we've studied, the glances of this story are uh, could not be more meaningful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was something that I picked up on, <clears throat> which I guess makes sense because Virginia Woolf was, was very interested in gender roles and um, and, and was a feminist. So... Um, when we look at the analysis of the actual words and actions or even the inactions of, of men versus women in this novel, women seem to have accurate inferences. Um, so their interpretations of the silences or of what's not being said, they seem to be pretty accurate based on the actual stated responses of their male counterparts, especially for Mrs. Ramsey and Lily. Uh, so if you think about like when Lily and uh, Tansley are at that dinner and Lily's like making all these like inferences about like, oh, he's pissed off right now because nobody's paying attention to him and he's going to say something like this. And he says it. And she's like, told you. And <laughs> it's like yeah, she could just yeah. like it's like a play by play. She could just predict everything that he's. Oh, he, she could predict. So maybe she is that oracle or seer that for the, the art. Anyway. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so that's like pretty, uh, pretty much like how um, women perceive things is, is very accurate. They they can predict what's going to happen accurately. Uh, men have accurate inferences, but they don't care, and they do what they want anyway. So Tansley, likewise, is like, oh, Lily's like, he's she's not friendly to me right now. She's not throwing me a bone so she's like she's being really spiteful and hateful why is she doing that I'm just going to needle her until she's nice to me (laughs) Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and then like with Mr. Ramsey and Mrs. Ramsey Mr. Ramsey's like uh, she wants to be left alone with James but you know what doesn't matter I want my sympathy I want to be heard right now so I'm just going to stand over her until she acknowledges me Right. Um, stuff like that so Again, that the idea of like the dominance that that the men need to be at the forefront all the time, 
Um, and then there's also the, the male versus the female expectations of dialogue itself. Men want sympathy. They want social lubrication. They need some ego stroking. I didn't realize was when I was making my outline just how um, sexual my language was. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, you know, when you're going to the lighthouse, sometimes that's just the things that accompany you for the journey. That's uh, yeah. We understand. <laughs> This story we did not read, uh, at least, again, it was not a motif, a uh, literary decision I was looking for, but I'm sure we could find some if we if we needed, if we were pressed to do so, we could probably yeah. discover a couple of <laughs> innuendos. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> so um, what men want from the dialogue is to feel good about themselves. Um, women, however, in their dialogue in their silences especially they're actually like pushing against what they call what is like referred to as the tyranny of the conversation and of the men's expectations so they know what's wanted of them especially lily right lily and also even cam um and mrs ramsey so they know that the men want them to be like oh let me help you out here let me let me make you feel good about yourselves. But they, they hold out. It's like they're, they're, they're toeing the line there. They're just holding out, holding out, and then they give in. Um, so it's it's interesting that... Um, Cam has it's, that it's issue this constant as war. well. Yeah, she does. She does. And Mrs. Ramsey, and then Lily, too. She almost, like, as soon as Mr. Ramsey's gone, that's when she's like, oh, man, I should have been nicer to him. Yeah. Oh, well. Thanks. Didn't she um, have a critical misread of him as well at some point, or thought she did at the, in the back half? She's like, ex- oh, I forgot what it was. I thought there was a moment when she's getting ready to paint and he's kind of hovering that she is thinking a certain way and then he says something nice and she didn't expect him to. Or yeah, maybe I might be misremembering that. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So he's like, she's trying to paint, and she's trying to ignore him, and he just keeps coming around her. Yeah, um, hovering. And and so. She, she finally is like, all right, I might as well just get this over with because he's just killing my time right now. And so she she's like listening to him bemoan everything. And instead of being like, oh, you poor man, she looks down at his shoes and she's like, yo, you got some nice shoes. And then he's like super nice. And he's like, yeah, check out my shoes. And then he notices that her shoelaces are untied. So he ties her shoelaces. That's what. Okay. And then he like walks yeah. away. And that's when she was like, oh, I should have been nice. I should have given him the sympathy that he wanted. Yeah, yeah, can't escape that whirlwind. Give that man <laughs> yeah. his sympathy. Cam too, like yeah. I said, it gets that's like kind of her whole narrative arc in the boat is that she's yeah. she's you know in league with James. They have a front against tyranny, but then she kind of she's kind of starts to break down and wants to reach out to her father. Yep. Yep. What yeah. else in terms of dialogue? I mean, is the dinner scene then the kind of apex of studying this this issue in the story? The dialogue versus intern because it it's just such a rich moment for this. It's really like, yeah, it really is. Yeah, I, and I, I think a lot of um, there would be so many examples of exactly what I was just like explaining as far as what I think Virginia Woolf was was trying to highlight there. Um, but also in on page one seventy eight. <clears throat> Lily actually directly analyzes language here when she's <clears throat> um, kind of like thinking about whether or not she should talk to Carmichael. She wanted to go straight up to him and say, Mr. Carmichael. Then he would look up benevolently as always from his smoky, vague green eyes. But one only woke people if one knew what one wanted to say to them. 
Angie wanted to say not one thing, but everything. Little words that broke up the thought and dismembered it said nothing. About life, about death, about Mrs. Ramsey. No, she thought. One could say nothing to nobody. The urgency of the moment always missed its mark. Words fluttered sideways and struck the object inches too low. Then one gave it up. Then the idea sunk back again. Then one became, like most middle-aged people, cautious, furtive, with wrinkles between the eyes and a look of perpetual apprehension. For how could one express in words these emotions of the body, express the emptiness there? Um, So there's within that statement, she goes on to talk about more about like language and the disconnect between like a visceral reaction to something versus the, the speaking of it, the intellect, intellectual, intellectualization of it. Um, but the the failure of language, I think, is is another aspect of the lack of dialogue in this um, novel, where she's examining how much, like, especially how the the language is so much affected, or the dialogue is so much affected by social niceties, which automatically restricts language and restricts those emotions because your your language can be very emotional it restricts all of that so that the, it's setting it up to be a failure and and again that ties back to the dinner where it's like they're talking about like what a lovely meal this is oh i'll give you a recipe and oh yes i love yeah the i boof. love this cut of meat yeah exactly <laughs> um, the and it's just like vapid conversations um so but it's it's because of those social niceties and and that's the failure of languages is that it's it's restricted in that way yeah in a novel in which you can feel the author at pains to bend and shape language in a kind of, not a new way but in a way that's incredibly bold like she's trying to yeah. herself in its structure in her sentences kind of like reimagine just balance i guess balance and structure and everything and yeah it's fascinating to have that in a story that's almost explicitly trying to do that too yeah yeah any other thoughts on the the internal the external the lack of dialogue any any lines that you'll remember uh, as being especially interesting or funny with with dialogue i mean i guess there is like you said the dinner chat about the food was kind of funny yeah yeah and the, the boof the boof <laughs> i don't know what french word that yeah. was that's just what my memory is telling me <laughs> something yeah, like that it's, it's yeah that's french for beef yeah oh okay the beef <laughs> Yeah, that was it. I wish Mr. Ramsey had gotten off one, one. I guess he did swear, huh? He took the lighthouse away, of course, as the as the title reminds us. But then, doesn't he swear and say like "damn you, Mrs. Ramsey" when she's promising that? He he does curse at some point. He's pretty he does, meaningful. yeah. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's like pretty hurt by it. And instead of right. apologizing, he's just like storms off. <laughs> and then he hovers later, and then like he sits yeah. by her on the couch when she's knitting, and he and then they don't speak. <laughs> That's yep. the, his form of apology, I suppose. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I. It's a curious way to write a story, no question, and uh, a literary one to be sure. Hard to sell to maybe a modern <laughs> reader, but plenty to talk about. Okay. And mm-hmm. any other thoughts on the essays? No other Greek myth stuff to get out there before we move on. 
<laughs> no. I'm okay, <laughs> cool. I covered the ones that I wanted, and yeah, I feel feel good about those. Uh, let's move to our critical assistance part then. This is when we call on outside criticism. Could be in the form of an essay, a video, some reflections we've read. Mine's from an interview this week, so a di- slightly oh. different source. Though it kind of reads like a like a review, but anyway. And yeah, we, we pull from an outside source and get outside of our own heads for a bit and discuss what others have thought of the book and the work and like see what other criticisms out there, what other opinions are out there. Let's talk about uh, fivebooks.com. I'll go first. So fivebooks.com, I'll plug at any opportunity. It's a website I just absolutely love. It's like the best way to get book recommendations, in my opinion. And it's just what it sounds like. They have experts on the website who they interview. And the whole premise of the interviews is to give the five book recommendations for a, you know, a certain theme or certain topic. Usually the people are experts in in the field that they're recommending for. So it's like, if you want a Russian history book, it's like, here's this professor professor of Russian history. They're going to recommend five books about Russian history, that kind of a thing. It's just mm. wonderful. The interviews are very insightful and I, you just can't walk away without 10 ideas of something to read. This interview on five books was with Hermione Lee, who is Wolf's official biographer. So this is like mm. the person tasked. I don't know how many of biographies she wrote about Wolf, but she's got to have at least done one. <laughs> and yeah, so this is like, I guess, her officially designated biographer, the important title, I suppose. And I think the prompt was just, what five books would you recommend to read that Virginia Woolf wrote? And this was her number one recommendation, by the way, to The Lighthouse. This was like oh. the first book she recommended. Um, some other interesting picks on there, notably A Room of One's Own wasn't included. That's the nonfiction I'd read in college and I really loved, so... Some interesting picks on there. These are a couple quotes, though, from Lee during the interview. She says, I find the book still, every single time I read it, very moving, tremendously impressive, extremely complicated and interesting in how it's put together, and approachable in many different kinds of ways. It's approachable as a love story, as a family story, as a ghost story, as an elegy for the 19th century, as a war novel in an indirect and interesting way, and as an astonishingly ambitious experiment in a completely different way of writing fiction. Any thoughts on the list? I'll say that War Story doesn't do much for me. That seems like a pretty generous yeah. read, though the sun does die in the war, so it's not... And there are some, like, noises and scenes from battles and stuff, so it's like... I don't know. But, I'm, you know, like she said, it, it is infinitely complicated, so you can... I could see somebody trying to read it that way. The Ghost yeah. Story really did unlock something for me, though. I, I was like, oh, yeah. man, that does change the final part of the book. Like, if you read it that way and sort of interpret, like, how do the characters who are dead, especially Mrs. Ramsey, of course, hang over the story, I think that's pretty yeah. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, they, they kind of, like, haunt their conscious. Like, yeah, I, I mm-hmm. think that... Yeah, that makes sense to me. And the love story, uh, yeah, I guess so, because Mrs. Ramsey and Mr. Ramsey, like, in the end... When Lily's thinking about their relationship, she's like, oh, I would never want something like that. But then she's like, well, but, you know, they did stay together and I'm sure that there was some love there. There had to have been. Um, That makes sense to me, too. Yeah. Yeah, I um, appreciated that. Again, I think love story would be like a a anti-love story. You know, put a little (laughs) twist on that. Or, you know, kind of it's more like a marriage story to me, which obviously, as we know, can be love plus, you know, or minus a bunch of other things. It's like brings with its own complications (laughs) and stuff. So, yeah. Um, Next quote. What Wolf does in her narratives is to think about many kinds of different shapes and forms, like a painting or abstract marks down the middle of a page or the shape of a bowl of fruit or the shape 
shape of a lighthouse in the bay. She tries to build the story almost like an abstract painting, and there's a lot about painting into the lighthouse. It's a novel that doesn't just let you read the story. It makes you think about the shape and structure. She's interested in how to master the passing of time. I, 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 yeah, (laughs) I mean, I'd have to, like, I would need this paragraph to be an essay in and of itself to maybe really get get this idea like i i do feel it in my bones kind of like that what she's saying has some truth that there the way a paragraph is written in wolf's imagination the way her attention shifts and kind of jumps around like i could see that i think um when i read this interview part of my thinking it when reading it was like this is a person who loves the time passes section and has allowed it to color her readings of the other sections, which is kind of what I happened to me because I love that middle part so much. I thought it was so bold, fascinating and had some of the best writing, but I just don't think, I just don't think some of the slumps in the other sections get to be papered over by a brilliant middle inclusion, you know, Mm, like mm -hmm, I think the mm -hmm. middle part is kind of brilliant and obviously there's flashes of brilliance, you know, all over the rest of the novel. But I just, I don't know. I always hesitate with this. What, what's the literary term for this when you use a part to represent the whole? I forget, like synecdoche or something like that. Yes, but uh, yeah, but yeah. It's, like, it's like we're doing that in a literary sense where it's like just because an author pulls off one unequivocally genius moment doesn't mean the rest of the book ha- has genius to match or something. Like, I, I don't know. Right. So I, I like this line of thinking. I, I can't fully understand it quite yet or something i wasn't reading the book like an abstract painting and thinking through forms in the same way but there's something there there's an essay in that idea for sure i i i'm really interested in in this idea and if i were to go back and read this this is something that i would definitely keep in mind as i would as i read yeah yeah um a couple more quotes i'll try and be brief but there's some interesting ones from this interview Uh, This quote I found fascinating. There's a rather tyrannical, eccentric father, Mr. Ramsey, and the kind of mother who thinks that a woman's life is about having children and bringing up families and matchmaking and being attentive to the head of the family. She is not particularly interested in feminism or new ways for women to live their lives. Is this a character assassination? Like, what? (laughs) The thing is, and we commented a lot on this in the dinner, and I think the other thing is, looking back on it now, because I thought Mrs. Ramsey was fascinating. This is a woman who accepts her, yeah, she does accept her traditional role, all that stuff is true, but also has, like, thoughts of running away, and and she knows that she's trapped. Was I misreading chunks of those? Was that Lily thinking those things that like this reading is deeply not like how I read Mrs. Ramsey? I mean, I read that she accepts uh, she literally accepts all of this and like that is her role. But she's so discontent and like she knows things are wrong, but is too frozen or however one to read her character to do anything. I don't like I don't know. It's saying what's the description again? being attentive she is that she's not particularly interested in feminism as fast i guess like literally as a character it's true but as a construction by wolf it's like intensely interested in feminism i guess that's kind of where i'm dividing here it's i I suppose the character yeah if you handed mrs ramsey a book on feminism she'd be like well i don't know about all that nonsense but like by constructing her the way she has wolf has made her a fascinating study for feminism right yeah i guess it's just a slight twist i suppose i don't i don't so much disagree with this uh interviewer or interviewee more so than like i guess i was just thinking of mrs ramsey in more of a symbolic way or or something 
Well, also, I, I think it's a little bit unfair to say that she she is not completely content in her life. Um, that you did not misread that at all. But like also, she, in the dinner, she like wants to die. <laughs> or, yeah, she's yeah, like, she, I, I like could a, definitely die right now. Yeah, yeah, there's like transitions between her like making the social niceties and doing the things this quote is saying, like trying to match make Lily with Barnes or whoever that was, Banks or Barnes or whatever. Yeah, and she's banks, she's doing yeah. these things, these social things, as as gender dictates. But also like she's like. I wish I could explore the world and maybe I'll just die and that's fine. <laughs> like I don't, yeah. there's just such a much more tense, naughty thing happening with her and her discontent is like, it seems to me like bleeding on the page, but I don't know. Yeah. The other thing I, again, it made me question like maybe those were Lily's thoughts imposed on her, but I didn't think so. That's not my memory no, of it. No, I'm pretty sure that was Mrs. Ramsey yeah. herself. And also when you look at the way that she analyzes Lily, Lily who is a hundred percent uninterested in, in men, um, in the in a romantic sense, she had, she really admires Lily, just like Lily admires Mrs. Ramsey. They're just so opposite. And Mrs. Ramsey makes the comment like, "Yeah, she's you know maybe physically not exactly what a man wants, but um, if a man were to marry her, it would be for that look in her eye, for the intelligence that she shows, for the you know." So she's not looking at uh, she. I I think that she, it is unfair to be like, oh, she's totally like just like anti-feminism and stuff. I think that she appreciates what she sees in others and, uh, and she, but she realizes the reality of, of the setting that she's in, which is like, yeah, women get married, women have babies. And then we have to give into the tyranny of, of male ego. Yeah. Whatever man (laughs) we're paired with and stuck with sort of. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting quote. And I, I don't think I completely disagree, but also it's like, What's going on with her character I find to be, like, deserving of much more intrigue and complexity than that description, I guess. Um, Final quote. I'll try and be brief here. Um, She says, uh, Wolf, in her interpretation, Wolf is not being sentimental about death. It says she is very worried about being sentimental. She is worried about guarding her emotions from the page, and that's why she's so invested in form. She wants rhythm and form to create a wall from her personal emotions so that they won't be too raw on the page. It's fascinating. Do you? How do you feel about this? I don't know. She is very worried about being sentimental. I I find her writing to well. Now, granted, let's let's do the dictionary poll here because it's just like maybe I'm thinking of sentiment in a different way. Feelings of tenderness, sadness, or nostalgia. Like to me, this book has characters that are like melodramatically sad in scenarios that don't demand like that's most of the book is people taking a glance and thinking and extrapolating the glance into deep feelings of uh like just detachment isolation death i mean like i don't know it's it's a strange way again to describe a book like this because i i guess compared to victorian writing like it's not sentimental in the terms of like love and human connection and romance but it's sentimental in that it takes very staid scenarios very like bland situations and explodes them into like thoughts of again yeah existential dread death life purpose which i guess maybe sentimental is not quite the right word for that kind of effect that wolf pulls off but i don't it yeah i don't know <laughs> what do you think yeah i Yeah, maybe this is just... When I think of sentimental, I I think of mm, being dripping with 
positive, specifically positive, right? I guess yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. emotion, um, and and just kind of like ignoring a lot of the negative. I but see for me like there's no danger with that in in this novel at all. There's mm. I mean it's it's very the emotions that are associated are are very complicated, and there's nothing that's being buried there's no negativity being buried in order to highlight the positives i yeah i don't know like, it's interesting i the yeah. description of she wants rhythm and form to create a wall from her personal emotions they won't be too raw yeah. I, a lot of the book is raw to me though and i it is but you're she's not wrong that i think if you were to write about this book i don't think the first thing you would write about would be the kind of like traditional character study simple readings that you would do in like a high school class it would i think the rhythm and form Mm -hmm. thing you'd have to kind of start with syntax in a way where it's like yeah she just does not write and focus on things in perhaps the order way and cohesive manner we'd expect or something like yeah she's doing bold style stuff with her writing so that that can't be denied or ignored like I, i would probably start there too but like saying that the personal emotions aren't too raw on the page parts of this book are like melodramatically raw on the page yeah. like exaggeratedly mm-hmm. again to the point that it was making me kind of laugh on the page like right. having a dinner commenting on the beef and like hey how much letters did you write today and then the next sentence being I wish I were dead and I can't stand this <laughs> like yep. I don't yeah it's not sentiment you're right in terms of the positive romance love of you know like traditional roles and marriage and fall in love kind of stuff but yeah th- I don't know I found part of it to be intensely raw emotionally i I think so too yeah it's it's a very emotional read i feel it but yeah yeah i could see how the form thing maybe that's just because we cracked it through some barrier or something you know like because we thought and discussed and had a chance to really like dig into it that we're i don't know unlocking that or something because it is it's tough to read i mean it just is like she is she is trying to present a story in a form and a flow that is not typical and makes you work it's interesting anyway mm-hmm. okay well that's um her biographer's take so that's from five books interesting yeah and for your uh, critical assistance what you got mine is from new york times but this is from may 1925 when the book was first released um and it's called Virginia Woolf Explores an English Country Home to the Lighthouse as a Brilliantly Ambitious Analysis of Domestic Psychology. It was written by Louis Cronenberger. <clears throat> so again, this is from 1925. So it'll be interesting to see how yeah, that's folks back then yeah, did it. Yeah, almost upon release. Yeah. Um, to the So he, he writes this article. Um, a lot of it is comparing to um, a previous art. Uh, previous novel that she wrote um mrs dalloway so um any references to any comparisons that you notice it's to mrs dalloway to the lighthouse on the other hand is a book of interrelationships among people and though there are major and minor characters the major ones are not as clarissa dalloway was the alpha and omega of the story but more truly the means for giving to the story its harmony and unity its focal points those who reject to the lighthouse as inferior to Mrs. Dalloway because it offers no one with half the memorable lucidity of Clarissa Dalloway must fail to perceive its larger and artistically more difficult aims. They must fail to notice the richer qualities of mind and imagination and emotion. Um, so here he's pointing out like, yeah, I mean, there's not 
a focal like character necessarily. We kind of get that with Mrs. Ramsey, but she's like killed off. Um, but but that's not the point of this story. It's not a traditional like plot driven story in that way. Right. Um, and so he's just you know I, I was like yeah we have to remember as we're reading that it's it's more about the the mindset of these folks and and and. The, the conversations that are had are in not being had when there's no in the Victorian expectation there's no anchor character really there's no yeah. there's no grand story and there's no character achievement even growth to use like the re- really simple term but there's just no yeah there's just no focal character to hang the story on exactly yeah and when you think there is one, yeah, she she did. Yeah, yeah. So Lily, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like we called our shot with Lily kind of in the first yeah. part. We we picked yeah. up on that. She's probably going to have some sway. So yeah. Um, he goes on to say, "It is the final portion of the book which is most perplexing. It seems to sound in the minor what the long first portion sounded in the major. To persist as an ironical mood to reestablish a scene." with the sorry changes time has wrought to reduce a symbolical achievement when it is finally made to the level of negation. The long opening portion seems to be carrying you ahead towards something which will be magnificently expressive, and then this final portion becomes obscure, a matter of arcs of fractions of uncoordinated notes. By comparison with the fine, the rest, this final portion seems pale and weak. Uh, perhaps there's a reason for this. Perhaps Mrs. Wolf meant to show that with Mrs. Ramsey's death, things fall apart, get beyond correlation. Mr. Ramsey is no longer interesting. Can it be because he's no longer counterpoised against his wife? Life seems drifting as the Ramseys drift over the bay in their boat, and all their physical vigor and all their reaching of the lighthouse at last conveys no significance. The truth is that this final portion of the book strikes a minor note, not an intention or minor note, which might still, in the artistic sense, be major but a meaningless minor note which conveys the feeling that one has not quite arrived somewhere, that the story which opens brilliantly and carries on through a magnificent interlude ends with too little force and expressiveness. So he really did not like the final portion, the, the To the Lighthouse excerpt. Um, and, but it, it, I was thinking too, he's, he thinks that the, the first part was like really great, the second part... Um, the time passes really great, which we both absolutely loved um, the middle section as well. And I was thinking about like, how do I feel about that final section? I, I don't think of it as negatively as he does. Well, I, like I said, I, you know, if we were to crudely put them in order, I think it's better than the first, just because it settles. Like it feels yeah. settled to me. Like, okay, we just have to think about Lily and we just have to think about him and his kids. The first part feels to me like like a whirlwind, like infinitely mm-hmm. more chaotic. This, right. So that's why his description, it fascinates me. There was a quote in there that really did hit me. I'll try and find it. But it's basically the idea that the first half was super focused. And it's like, yeah. I don't feel that way at all. Like the first part is insanely complicated. You're getting yeah. like so many points of view and shifts in mood and tone and shifts in voice, and it's so much to do, keep up with. And so, to me, the final part was like way more comprehensible. Yeah, the way that um, when I read that, um, what he wrote, the way that I, I envisioned in my mind, the way that he was explaining it is the <clears throat> the first part, the two the, uh, or the window part. It's like a, a wave that's like picking up momentum and pushing things out. Then the interlude is like it cresting, and then and the end is just like 
when the water settles, yeah. there's like still again Just some ripples. Um, right. So it's like really there's a lot of momentum being built at the beginning. It's like, oh yeah, that's great. But then like when you expect the climax is is what I think he's trying to say is like in the end you're you're expecting this like big explosion of something, but it just it does, it just settles and it's back to yeah. being like calm and he's just like I guess for him that bothered him. I love that Mr. Ramsey is no longer interesting. Was he in the first part? <laughs> what, like what? <laughs> that was how you read the first part of the book was like this deeply interesting guy. Like what? I don't. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's so strange. Yeah. That's another strange one. Um, Arcs fractioned uncoordinated notes. I don't know. I, I think the the only issue I would have, and this is too one-to-one, maybe I'm being too simple, but because the kids, Cam and James don't get a ton of direct, like, action in the first part the fact that they have to do so much of the stories carrying in the final is but it's interesting though because cam was you know rambunctious little little demon and james was like the typical perfect son so there's already ways you can read that though i think there's like an interesting switch there but no in the metaphorical wave that you just kind of outlined or explained i think the the book in a sense could be read perfectly that way you've got this huge crescendo building or whatever the musical term would be and then and then some explosive note and time passes and then you just kind of deal with the wreckage or whatever yeah 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 um the final thing that i pulled it is i think in this superb interlude called time passes that mrs wolf reaches the most impressive height of the book and there one can find a new note in her work something beyond the ironic sophistication and civilized human values of mrs dalloway and this description of the unused house in the is it the hebrides I think it's some Hebrides? Scottish island or something. I think they said it's like the Isle of Skye or something. I forget. Yeah, it's, it's somewhere in Scotland. Yeah. This area of Scotland, entered for 10 years only by an old and forlorn woman, women caretakers in the wind and the sea air and the light of the lighthouse lamp. She has told the story of all life passing on, of change and destruction and solitude and waste. The story which more than a little embodies the plot action of the rest of the book, but above all, the story which has for... Uh, man, the profoundest human values of all, though for 10 years the house itself never received a human guest. The great beauty of these 18 pages of prose carries in it an emotional and ironical undertone that is superior to anything else that the first-class technician, the expert stylist, the deaf student of human life, and Mrs. Wolf ever has done. I was like, wow, that's, uh... I mean, I haven't read anything else else by, by Wolf, but... I was like, that is some high praise there for this one <laughs> yeah, section. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, I mean, at some point, if you create things, you have to have a best creation, you know? Got, got to rank stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, love list yeah. making and ranking. No, I think um, <laughs> I'm going to stick with my criticism from earlier than from the interview. We found an interesting comparison point between our two critical assistance parts. I, I really think that people when they read this their memory like this the superbness of that come down ch- section i think colors the rest like it, i think right. it happened in that interview too where she i forgot how she described it already but it's just like yeah that middle section is incredibly brilliant and really kind of this this dilapidation combined with these cruel little deaths and it's it's just so excellent but i don't want it to overshadow some of the kind of chaos and muddled 
there's some chaos and muddling here, I think, and it's, a, it's yeah. I don't know. I mean, it depends on your patience for more experimental forms with, with literature, um, I guess, would color the rest of it. But I just, I guess I want to caution against it, because I, too, thought it was, you know, really, like, incredible. But I, it didn't make me love the rest, you know, and I don't want to have one part color the rest or something. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Any other quotes from that final chunk? <clears throat> Nope. Final, that it. final bit. Do you agree with the review overall? What'd you think? Um, yeah, I, I, I think that there were some parts that I, I, I agreed with and then others. I was not as disappointed in the third part as he was. So I, I thought he was a bit harsh um, on his take on that. But... I found it to be such a nice reprieve. I couldn't take any more yeah. of the first part, especially after Time <laughs> Passes, which was so lucid and clear yeah. and had yeah. such interest to it to, for me. Like, I couldn't have taken going back to 20, a 20 character free conscious you know stream of consciousness style and and it even includes things like that though it's not like it's totally it's not like the book completely shifts form or style it's still pretty dense and difficult but like the fact that it's basically three characters kind of four i was so thankful for it like i found it very clear and had some interesting ideas to play with at the end like i didn't yeah Yeah. i didn't feel let down like at all by that i found it kind of to be kind or something i was like thank god i don't have to worry about you know however many shifts in pov we had to do in the first part yeah yeah and and tonally it's different too i think maybe there's a really grand big 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 picture reading of this book where it's like wolf kind of created a 700 page historical epic family generational story in just one part and then immediately dispensed with it and was like nope time kills everything people die and things have little (laughs) meaning and we can't express it and then here i'm done with that (laughs) like i think if i had to put some kind of big meta reading on this book in its favor that i like appreciate it would basically be that that she like dispenses an entire genre of storytelling in in the first part just or kind of like sets that up and kind of plays with it messes with it it's like i basically did war and peace in one part and then immediately i'm just like fuck that i'm done with it yep, yep, <laughs> um yep. it is fascinating is like a commentary again on like novels or you know the history of like what a novel should be and what form yeah. it should take so my, my appreciation i guess grows thinking about it that way mm-hmm. i would and i wouldn't have thought about it unless i heard that review in that sense so interesting yeah Nice. Any other thoughts on either of the interviews, quotes? Nope. All good. Justice for the interesting Mr. Ramsey, right? (laughs) 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 An interesting character. Um, God, (laughs) hilarious. Uh, Okay, let's do our Hall of Fame and get out of here Uh, somewhat on time. This one's gone on long. Fitting enough, I guess. There's a long, (laughs) lot of books to unpack here. Long story. Um, Lightly Literary Hall of Fame is always our final segment. We are going to induct something from the story, stylistic or otherwise, into our own hall, just something about the book we admired. Even in the books we don't love as much, we do this just to, you know, praise something at the end. Though This one I think we both really enjoyed for, you know, for various complicated reasons or whatever. But, yeah, not hard to praise it. Um, I'm going to go first because mine I've given away. I'm just inducting – induct? Did I spell that right? Well, whatever. I'm inducting Time Passes. (laughs) I just think it's a legendary tempo change. Like, and it's yeah. also a good example of how to do a twist, not just plot twist, a mood twist, a focus shift, a thematic twist, a a twist in perception of narrative. Like, it's just a masterclass in how to like make a story do something unexpected, but also have it be really meaningful, interesting, insightful. And I, I just think her writing was really lucid in that section too. It just it yeah. it really gave a sharp focus to certain themes, topics that like 
I could see people just drowning in the first part of this book. You know, mm-hmm. I kind of did at certain points and got kind of lost in all the characters and all the interplay and everything. And so I just think that middle section deserves an induction. It's just, yeah, I found it to be phenomenal. Yeah, I agree that that was my favorite section. And, and I was just like, man, this is this is her style just distilled down into this one section. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Beautifully done. Yeah. Worth worth inducting for sure. How about yeah. for you? Uh, for me, um, I said best use of dialogue without dialogue and the analysis uh, power of, of non-communication. Just like hmm. of, of having dialogue without actually having dialogue. That's, You're inducting that's what the I really glance? <laughs> yeah, I'm Incredible. doing the glance. I'm doing the analysis. I'm doing the... Because it's just so... It's like every other... like Talk to a teen girl when they analyze a date or something, right? Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's just... It's real life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's real life, Nonverbal Travis. communication power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, I'll always remember some of those early... Not the exact wordings, but like some of those early quotes that we read and some of those scenes where it's like a person turns their eyes and then you get five pages about it. Like what could mm-hmm. the eyes contain? <laughs> what expressions, yep. what meanings, you know? Um, yep. Yeah. An interesting definition, I think by one of those reviewers about, I think it was mine, the sentimentality idea of like, I guess to them sentiment has to be spoken or something. I don't know. Cause I found some of those reflections to be quite sentimental. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. But maybe again, my definition of that, I think might just be operating slightly differently at, at any rate. Nice. Uh, Worthy inductions, I think, both. Uh, Did we even understand this book, Amanda? Final question? (laughs) Uh, In the way that Virginia Woolf wanted us to? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, we did what we could. I I suppose I'll give us that. And I think, you know, we hit on some crucial notes, some crucial thematic interpretive notes. So I'll pat ourselves on the back for that. I'm not sure if you can ever walk away from a book like this one feeling clear-eyed. Yeah, very blurry-eyed instead, <laughs> kind of hazy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Being like, I think, I think I, I got it, right, guys? I, I think I got it. Yeah, I'd like to read some accessible essays about this book. I don't think I need to dig yeah. into the stacks. I don't need to go to JSTOR like that. I don't think I'm as interested in. Could just be stage of my life. But I, I'd love like a readable, you know, an interesting nonfiction about it. I would, I'd be intrigued. Yeah. Something kind. Something more clearly written than the book itself. How about that? We got to start there. <laughs> I'm not reading any literary criticism about this that takes on the form, shape, and tone of the thing itself. Oh, Too how much. wild would that be? Too much. Too much. <laughs> um, anyway, that is our To the Lighthouse Book Club episode two, and that closes our thoughts on To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. We hope you enjoyed listening to it, and as you stuck around this long again thanks as always for listening to the entire episode we do appreciate it if you can leave a rating on a podcast platform that you're on itunes spotify any of the big ones we're up that helps a ton to get eyeballs on it and to like keep the show promoted so yeah rate and review as best you can we appreciate it we have other books coming up and amanda will tell you about them in order the next uh, three picks are in yes next up we've got king leopold's ghost by adam hawkschild which is a nonfiction work um, the Psychology of Zelda, edited by, edited by Anthony M. Bean, Ph.D. It's going to be some scholarship on the video game Zelda. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have uh, Piranesi I think by so. Susanna Clark. Piranesi? 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 Piran- yeah, Piranesi? a short fantasy it's, book. Yeah. Going with trying to pick some more fantasy, but don't want to get into the big epics. So a shorter fantasy work. And King Leopold's yeah. Ghost is about colonialism in the Congo. 
So it's a heavy, at least we got a heavy nonfiction coming up, but behind like um, a lighter one, video game analysis. So I think that's a good balance because King Leopold's Ghost will be a brutal read, like extremely dense and intense. So (laughs) Um, we got that pair with To the Lighthouse is like, man, we really did. We put this is work here. (laughs) We're just (laughs) lining up big (laughs) tasks for ourselves, but that's okay. (laughs) We enjoy it. Um, Anyway, as I said before, thanks listeners as always for sticking with us to the very end. We appreciate it. Look forward to those and keep an eye on the social media feeds. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. (laughs) 